Timothy chapter 3, as we work our way through the book of of 1 Timothy, uh, Orthodox church officials in Russia discovered in 2008 that one of their church buildings had disappeared, just poof, gone. 200-year-old building in a rural area northeast of Moscow had gone unused for over a decade, but now the Orthodox Church, which was experiencing some growth, was considering using the building again. And that's when they showed up and discovered the building was gone. They had to get to the bottom of this. So after investigating the matter, the church officials Uh, They didn't blame aliens from outer space for the missing structure or anything like that. What they found out is that the perpetrators were villagers from a nearby town who they said had come and taken the bricks, brick by brick, from the building and sold them to a local businessman. Each brick, for each brick, uh, the thieves received one ruble. That's about four cents. So a two-story brick facility did not go from a building to not being a building in just one bulldozing stroke. Rather, those bricks were apparently chiseled out one by one by one by lots and lots of people. Well, when I read that, that reminded me of something about the church today. You know, the church today is a building, a building made out of living stones, of Christians, And the church is not reduced in one fatal stroke, but rather by Christians, one by one by one, choosing not to be involved. Some will just stay home and watch on TV. Others will say, well, I read my Bible and pray, but I don't mess much with organized religion anymore. Others folks are saying, well, I do my own spiritual thing. And each decision means one less living stone. One brick chiseled away. Each decision takes somebody away. And in the end, in the end, the church intended by God to be the display of Christ's glory is chiseled away. Conversely, each person who gets involved helps to build the holy temple in the Lord made up of those living bricks One by one by one, the church where Christ is glorified. Now, we are continuing in this series through 1 Timothy. We're calling it Healthy Church. We've been through most of chapter 3 already, where Paul has been instructing us on the importance of healthy leadership within God's church and how church leaders ought to live and act. And then we also considered how those very clear attributes for church leaders ought to be pursued by all of us, as together we are called to love and to serve and to represent Jesus. Today I'm calling the message, It's a Big, Big House. This comes from Paul's closing chapter comments in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Now, before we read the text, I want you to imagine something with me for a moment, all right? I want you to imagine that you're kind of doing a a person-on-the-street interview, all right? You're asking people, random people on the street, this question. Why is the church important? Well, imagine that. You probably would get all kinds of different answers, wouldn't you? Some would maybe laugh at you and say, the church is not relevant at all in this modern day and age. 
Others might say, oh, the church is kind of like a, a museum, kind of fits in that same category. They both preserve things from the past. They're nice places to visit on a rainy day where you can observe how quaintly people used to live. But the church is out of touch with our modern culture. Others, you might ask, why is the church important? And they might couch their answer in perhaps some political term. They might view the church as a, a powerful voting block to oppose the erosion of, more, uh, of immorality or morality in our culture and to preserve the family. Or, or some might respond to that question by saying that they see the church's uh, importance as a social institution. It helps meet the, the physical needs of the poor and the emotional needs of the lonely or the distraught. It ministers to people at the pivotal times of life, birth, marriage, death, and times of crisis. Now, for many American churchgoers, the church is important because it meets many of their personal needs. They shop around for a church that makes them feel good each week. They get a weekly boost that enables them to cope with life. Now, I want you to keep imagining with me for a moment, all right? As you're continuing these interviews on the street, you come to a short, balding man with a beard, not me, who looks decidedly Jewish. Somewhat hesitantly, you ask this man, sir, we're asking people the question, why is the church important? Would you care to comment? And we're hardly prepared for the answer, he says, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ is the most important force in the world today. Its task is more important than all the governments and all the universities of the world combined. There is nothing to compare to it. And you might respond to him, well, that's a, a strong statement, sir. Why, why do you say that? And he would respond, because the most significant event in human history was when the living God took on human flesh and lived among us as the Lord Jesus Christ to bear our sins. And since he ascended into heaven, his church now reveals him on earth, even as he revealed God when he was on earth. So the church is important because it reveals Christ even as Christ reveals God in human flesh. Yes, the church is important. That is essentially what our Jewish rabbi friend, the Apostle Paul, would say to us if we were to meet him on the street. That's what he's saying in our text today in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. The church is the continuing incarnation of God incarnate. That word incarnate it's not a word we use a lot, but it comes from the Latin, actually two Latin words, and it means in flesh. In flesh. It means that God took on a human body in the person of Jesus Christ. And since Jesus ascended into heaven, we, us now, Christians, as his body, continue his presence on earth until he returns. And so, in a way, we are God incarnate. Wow, that's sobering, isn't it? Since the eternal destiny of every person on earth depends on his or her being rightly related to Jesus, the coming king, the judge of all the earth, nothing could be more crucial 
than the Lord's church. The Lord wants us as his people to catch a vision of the incomparable importance of the church in its role of revealing Jesus Christ. And so to catch that vision, we must understand the significance of the church in the world today. I want to invite you to read together with me Paul's concluding remarks about the, remarks about the church in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. The words are on the screen. Let's read together the word of God. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one should act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Beyond question, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. The word of God. So, here in this text this morning, we're going to look at three distinct reminders about the importance of God's church. And the first reminder that we want to look at is that the church is God's household. His household, the term household, views the church as the extended family of God, with God as the head of the household. It focuses mainly on relationships, relationships which should be built among those in the church and how those relationships reflect Christ to the world. Now, here in, a, in the United States, we tend to be pretty individualistic and goal-oriented, and it affects our view of the church. Sometimes we see the church as an organization that ought to have defined goals and offer programs in line with those goals to meet our needs. We like efficiency. If people are attracted to our programs, they will come. But is it enough? Is it enough just to gather as God's household or family? I, I read a story recently about an American missionary in Papua New Guinea who asked a, a native, a local, for the best route to get from one place to another. The local man, with a puzzled look on his face, replied, there are all kinds of routes, friend. He continued, he said, we could go through the bush and visit some friends along the way. Or we could take the coastal route. The sun will be strong, but an old man lives there, and he knows many good stories about World War II. Or we could take the road. We could talk to some members of my wife's family who live on this side of the river. Well, the missionary was getting frustrated with all this, thinking he just, he just doesn't get it. I want the best route. And then it hit him. The American idea of best is the most efficient, the easiest way to get there. The Papua New Guinea idea of best, though, was determined by which relationships you wanted to build. So I might suggest to us this morning, friends, that that Papua New Guinea definition of best is more in line with Scripture than our American way of thinking. 
We need to modify our perspective of the local church. We are not just a collection of individuals who happen to meet at the same spot every Sunday for worship and instruction. We are to become the family of God, which implies relationships. While not everyone can know everyone else intimately in a church this size, there ought to be a network of caring relationships where a person can be nurtured to maturity in Christ in a family atmosphere. As the household of God, the church is to reflect through relationships the person of Jesus Christ who dwells in our midst. I mentioned a few weeks ago the, the many one another passages in the New Testament. There are 59 distinct one another passages. That would be a great study for you to do on your own sometime. Just look up one another in the New Testament and see how many references there are to the one anothering that's supposed to take place in the household of God. You see, the church should be a safe place in a hard culture. And by a safe place, I don't mean compromising. I mean a place where no one is mean, where justice and mercy are both implemented, where we value everyone as an image bearer of God, enough to speak with truth and grace. And we're able to exercise both tough and gentle love because we're a part of the same family. You know, in the early church, the Christian community was a safe place, a safe space in the midst of a very violent and immoral and degrading culture. Does that sound like any culture that you might know today? This doesn't mean enablement. To be safe doesn't mean to enable people in their bad behavior. Instead, it means that we love one another deeply. We don't gloss over sin. We don't compromise on truth. But it means that people must see the sacrificial love of Jesus embodied in us. By the way, that's one of the reasons that the local churches here in Eugene and Springfield do this Project Hope every summer. It's really not an evangelistic effort. We don't pass out tracts. We don't preach to the kids that are coming to get their shoes and their backpack. We are making an effort to love people in our community, and to show them a face of the church that they might not be aware of, the face of generosity and care and acceptance and safety. You know, people might walk away from us. They might walk away from the church. Maybe it's because they don't think what we have to say is true or they're not interested in it, but here's something to take home with you today. People should never ever walk away from the church because we push them away with our attitudes or our words. The church is God's household. Let's look at another reminder from the text. A second reminder, not only is the church God's household, but the church is the church of the living God. The living God. As Paul writes to Timothy, to the Ephesian church, he wants to make clear that the so-called gods of the surrounding pagan cultures, the Greek and Roman cultures, they aren't living gods. Those are gods of stone and wood, gods of imagination. 
We talked about this in the introduction, the goddess Artemis that so dominated the city of Ephesus at that grand temple that dominated the city and dominated the culture. Artemis was nothing more than a statue. She wasn't alive. She was just an idol. But here, Paul talks about the church. The word in Greek is ekklesia, and it literally means the called out assembly. What are we called out of? We're called out of the world, out of the paganism of the world, out of the brokenness, out of the stains of the world, out of the hardship of the world, and we're called into the kingdom of God's eternal light. We are a called out people, a people who are to live in a distinct way. A living God dwells among us. Do you understand that? A living God. We are the temple us, we called out ones. We are the temple of the living God. We've been called out of this sinful world so that we can be holy. That means set apart. What are we set apart to? We're called out from the world and we're set apart to the living God who dwells within us and among us. So just as the phrase, the household of God, focuses on our relationships with one another, so this phrase, the church of the living God, focuses on our relationship with God. We are reminded from that phrase, the living God, that God is active, that he's near to us, that he's listening to our prayers, that he's involved in our life. The Holy Spirit prays for us when we don't have the words. Jesus intercedes for us. Even the word of God itself is living, active, and powerful. This is all important because we, people, cannot accomplish the work of the church without a living God's help. If we're just doing it on our own, it's nothing but self-accomplishment. One day, several years ago, the phone rang in the office of the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., where the president sometimes attended. And an eager voice said, do you expect the president to be in services on Sunday? And the rector who happened to answer the phone says, I cannot promise that, but we do expect God and we believe it will be an incentive enough for a reasonably large attendance. I love that little story. It's not a bad answer. You see, we need to expect the living God to meet with us. The church is of vital importance in the world today because we are called out of this world as holy people in close relationship with the living God who dwells in our midst. The world should sense they should sense that the living God is here amongst us. One more, more reminder from the text, a third reminder. Not only is the church a household, not only is the church the church of the living God, but the church is the pillar and foundation. The pillar and foundation. In the, in the text, Paul calls the church the pillar and support of the church. That word support, uh, in some English translations, it's translated as foundation or buttress or bulwark. What, is that, what does he mean by that? What's Paul talking about? Well, let's start first with the pillar. What, what is a pillar? 
Well, pillars served three primary functions in the first century. They supported statues and roofs. So if you think of Greek and Roman architecture, there's always lots of pillars involved. Supporting the roofs, supporting the statues. Number two, they thrust things up high so that they could be seen from far away. And then number three, often pillars were set up in the marketplaces, in the gathering squares of the towns and the cities so that notices could be published on them. They didn't have the internet, they didn't have television. So they would hammer the notices into the pillar in the middle of the town square. And so the Ephesians would be familiar to this idea of pillars since the temple of Diana, I've showed this to you before, this is an artist's rendition, but the temple of Diana had over 127 pillars resting on the foundation or the bulwark. Likewise, friends, the church, the church is to support, lift up, publish the truth so that everyone can see and know the truth of Jesus. Let's think about truth for one moment, all right? In one sense, the truth is absolute and it's independent of us. Is that right? Truth is truth. God's truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. It is true whether or not we choose to believe it or proclaim it. It is true. But in another sense, the church upholds, supports that truth. And so the church must never minimize biblical truth in favor of things like modern psychology or marketing techniques. Truth must be rooted in God's word. Not in our opinions, not in our preferences or our personal ideals. We must take care not to be big on spiritual experiences and emotion and methods while we remain weak theologically or doctrinally. But truth and doctrine is not merely to fill our heads with facts. It must affect our lives. The truth concerning God incarnate, God in the flesh, is a transforming truth. And so the church, us, we act as the pillar and foundation of the truth by putting that truth into daily life. That means when people observe you, church, whether we're together or apart, when people observe us in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our school setting, wherever we might find ourselves, we are the pillar and support of the truth. We are holding up the truth for people to see. That means our conduct should support and uphold the doctrinal truth concerning our God who was revealed in the flesh. Well, finally, in this, in this chapter, Paul closes up in verse 16, and he quotes an early church hymn, at least a part of a hymn, to elaborate on the core of truth as it centers in Christ. And so in six brief phrases from that ancient hymn, Paul outlines for us the truth, the truth that is our foundation, the truth that we're called to lift up and support. 
He starts off by saying the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. Timothy, beyond question, the mystery of godliness is great. Let me remind you how great it is. In verse 16, it refers to God revealing himself in Christ Jesus. The word mystery, uh, in our kind of our modern vernacular, the word mystery is something we can't quite figure out, right? You know, you watch a, a mystery television program or you read a mystery novel or whatever it might be. But in the first century thinking, a mystery was something that was being known by revelation, by being revealed, not by speculation, not by, well, here's what I think. Here's who I think did it. No, it's being revealed. I want you to think of a, a theater curtain. Have you ever been to the theater? And you're sitting out in the audience and you're waiting for the show to start. Suddenly the lights dim and the curtain begins to rise and the lights come up. What's happening? Something is being revealed. You're about to see something about what is to come. That's what God is doing through Jesus Christ. He is revealing himself in this mysterious way, slowly revealing how he is given of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He revealed, Jesus did, he revealed what perfect godliness is. God dwelling in us and through us. And so the mystery of godliness refers primarily to Jesus, but guess what? Secondarily, it refers to us, his church. As we are indwelled by Christ and his spirit, as we reflect him to the world, we are raising the curtain on what truth is, on who God is. I want you to think on that for just a moment. As you raise the curtain on Christianity, what do the people in your life see? What's behind the curtain that represents and reveals God's truth, God's mercy, God's grace, or God's compassion? Let's just briefly consider these six lines because he packs so much into this, these six lines. First of all, he says, revealed in the flesh. That sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Many religions speak of appearances of, of deities or gods, little g-gods, in the form of men or of animals. Roman and Greek mythology is full of that stuff. But all those are our appearances. None of them take the startling position of Christianity, which affirm, affirms that the God who existed from eternity, who created all things, entered into his creation and actually became a living, breathing human being. He was revealed in the flesh. The curtain was pulled back, and in the life of Jesus Christ, we see God's nature. We see his passion. We see his compassion. We see his mercy. We see his grace. We see his wisdom, and we see truth revealed all revealed in the flesh. The second thing Paul says is that Jesus was vindicated. Vindicated in the spirit. That word vindicated literally means declared righteous. Declared right with God, pure. When Jesus came to this earth, 
I mentioned this last week. He didn't come as an earthly king, did he? A mighty great king revealing the splendor of God. He showed up in the lowly form of a little baby, squawking and yelling like babies do, crying and pooping like babies do, in a lowly form. There's nothing majestic about that, is there? And yet, Jesus Christ grew to be this man who was vindicated in the Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, think about this in the life of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit showed up, it was to declare Jesus to be the righteous one. When Jesus first identified himself with sinners by submitting to baptism in the Jordan River, when he went to see John the Baptist, who showed up? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus by descending on him as a dove. Think about this. When Jesus went to the extreme humiliation of the cross, he bore our sin. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit showed up and he declared Jesus to be vindicated by raising him out of the grave. If Jesus had been a sinner, then he would have had to die for his own sins. And God could not have raised him from the dead. But the fact that God did raise Jesus from the dead proves, shows, vindicates that he indeed is the righteous one. Number three, he was beheld by angels, seen by angels. Angels had, had an interest in the Savior from the, from the cradle to the grave and beyond. Think about that. An angel announced to Mary the conception and the whole plan. And then later the angels proclaimed the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. Angels showed up to minister to Jesus after his 40 days of trial and temptation in the wilderness. Angels proclaimed his resurrection at the tomb for those who came. And angels, it was angels that addressed the disciples as Jesus ascended after the resurrection back to heaven, beheld by angels. Number four, proclaimed among the nations. After the resurrection, the Lord Jesus made it plain to the disciples that the message of salvation was not just for the Jews, but it was for everyone. From Matthew 28, go therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of what? All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. There is only one message for all people in the world, and that is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, proclaimed among the nations. Number five, Jesus is believed on in the world. This is the only means that God has ordained for every single person around the world to receive the gift of salvation. They must believe in God's plan and purpose in Jesus Christ. For God, you know it, so loved the world, you can say it with me, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. B, 
believed on in the world. And then finally, taken up in glory. This is referring to the bodily ascension of the risen Lord Jesus. Remember after he came out of the grave, he hung around for a while, didn't he? With the disciples. He made himself known to a bunch of people. And then it was time for him to ascend. It's put last here in the hymn, out of, out of sequence really, because this is the crowning achievement of Jesus. Where is he now? He's ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth. As the angels promised, one day he will return to this earth in the same manner as he ascended, visibly, bodily, in power, in glory, taken up in glory. So friends, this this little hymn packs a lot of theology into a, a little package. The incarnation, life, death, resurrection, commission, ascension. Jesus is God revealed in human flesh. And as such, he is the only Savior. And so why is the church important? Why is the church important? Because God has left us here to reveal his Son to the world. Even as Jesus revealed God when he was on the earth. And so as the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, we are the current expression of Jesus Christ in this world until he comes again. And friends, that is a staggering job description. Nothing could be of greater importance. Maybe you've been turned off by bad experiences in churches that were institutional, where God only dwelled in name but not in reality. You know, that, if that's the case, then we need to grasp a new vision. A new vision of what God intends for his church. Expressed locally, committed to the world around us. You see, brothers and sisters, we need to make it happen right here so that people will say, I have seen the living God dwelling among his people at Garden Way Church in Eugene, Oregon. The great composer, Giacomo Puccini, his opera's number among the world's favorites, was stricken with cancer in 1922. But he was determined to write a final opera, which some, it's entitled Toronado, and some consider it his best opera of all. His students implored him to rest, to save his strength, but he persisted, remarking at one point, if I do not finish my music, my students will finish it. Well, in 1924, Mr. Puccini was taken to Brussels to be operated on. And he died there two days later after the surgery. But guess what? His students did finish his final work. And in 1926, the gala premiere was held in Milan under the baton of Puccini's favorite student, Arturo Toscanini. All went brilliantly that evening until they came to the point in the score where the master had been forced to put down his pen. Toscanini, his face wet with tears, stopped the production. 
He put down his baton. He turned to the audience and cried out, thus far the master wrote, but he died. And then after a few moments of silence, his face now wreathed in a smile, Toscanini picked up his baton and he cried out again, but his disciples finished the work. They finished the work. Friends, our master died, was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, leaving us the most important task in the world to finish his work, to proclaim his great salvation among the nations. But to do that, each one of us must commit ourselves to a living relationship with the living God. We also must commit ourselves to one another as members of God's household. You see, it is a big, big house, and there's plenty of room for everyone. But we must commit ourselves to know, live by, and reflect God's word of truth to those who have yet to come into the house. Will you pray with me?